Well, we've been in a study for some time, a study that I've called uh, Jesus B.C. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at the Old Testament and seeing types and figures of Jesus and of salvation in the Old Testament. And I said from the very beginning that my uh, one of my biggest goals in this is for us to see for us to see that from the very beginning that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that He hasn't got more than one way of bringing salvation to mankind, that uh, the cross wasn't an afterthought, it wasn't a plan B, that mankind never was saved by their works. Because many people have the idea that in the Old Testament, that salvation was based on people's works, that it was by law-keeping, it was by good deeds and all of those things. And I think that we have more than uh, seen from the passages that we've looked at that no one in the Old Testament could ever do enough or ever did enough to merit salvation. That uh, as we looked at all the characters that we hold up as heroes, all of the examples that we have, and people that we even try to attain to be like or see as being uh, heroes of the faith, so to speak, were extremely flawed and sinful individuals. And you look at their lives and the way that they lived. If we were judging them by what we think uh, a person must do to be saved by human standards, uh, we wouldn't qualify them as good people. Uh, One that we often look at is Moses. And, of course, Moses was a murderer. Uh, He was a liar. He was a fugitive. uh, All kinds of stuff, right? And not someone that we would quantify as being Uh, worthy of salvation, right? Just the fact that we need salvation means that we're messed up, right? And just the fact that we need salvation means that uh, there is something flawed, something wrong that needs to be corrected. And so the idea that we could ever be good enough to balance that out or to have our good works outweigh our bad works is really uh, dumb. Can I say that? It's a dumb idea that we could ever do enough to uh, outweigh our bad works. And so as we've looked through the Old Testament, we have seen over and over again that God illustrates in his word that mankind is sinful and is broken. And what God desires to do is freely bring about salvation to those who will look to him in faith. We've seen character after character that look to God in faith and believed God, and it was counted to them for righteousness. And that is a phrase that I've said over and over again. There's a couple characters in the Bible that it is applied to, literally. But as we look through Scripture, we see that God desires for us to put our faith and trust in Him. Something that I believe was last week that we covered quite extensively is the fact that we try to be independent. We try to be independent of God. And that is what happened all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Satan lied to Adam and Eve and said, The day that you eat thereof, ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You can live independent of God. You don't need God. You can be like God, right? Even before that, that was what Satan and the fallen angels, they tried to set their independence from God. He says, I will be as the Most High. I don't need God anymore. I'm going to set my independence from him. You come up to the Tower of Babel. And they said, we're going to build a tower whose top will reach to the heavens. 
We're going to find a workaround. We're going to find our own method. We're going to find a way that we can worship all the hosts of heaven. And now it wasn't a, some sort of a literal skyscraper that you weren't dumb enough to think that they could build a literal staircase up to heaven. But instead, they were trying to make a way to bypass God, and they were making idols and false gods, gods of their own imaginings, because they didn't want the God of all creation to be their authority, to be over them. They didn't want to operate on his terms, because from that first man and woman, from Adam and Eve, and the first sin, sin had corrupted men to the very core. Sin had corrupted mankind to where our thoughts and our deeds and our desires were contrary to the perfect will and perfect plan of God. And so we are constantly going against what is good, what is beneficial, what is healthy, what God has desired for us. And so that's that corruption that comes in and it taints everything. Where we look in the New Testament, it says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That's what it's talking about, that even our very best uh our best efforts, our best works that we do are still tainted by wrong motives, by uh, fleshly desires, by our pride and different things like that. And so if I am trying to be good enough to live a good enough life, to try to uh, impress anyone or to earn anything, I'm coming back and instead of trusting in God, instead of putting faith in God, I'm trusting in myself, I'm trusting in my religious adherences, I'm going through all of these works and all these motions and different things and putting faith in anything and everything except for God. And so what we've seen all the way through the Old Testament is God constantly desires for mankind to repent, okay? And that's a word that a lot of people get hung up on, but to repent means to have a change of mind. The change of mind leads to a change of direction. We always want to tack onto the end of that, repent of sin. That's not necessarily what the Bible tells us. To repent, to have this change of mind, is to make a 180, to go from the direction you're going and go a different direction. Where they are seeking after their own righteousnesses, to forsake that and realize I can't earn salvation, I can't be righteous of my own doing, so I am going to put myself completely and wholly upon the mercies of God for His righteousness imputed on my behalf. Okay? And so we see that that is what biblical repentance is, is ceasing to go after your way and align with God's way. Okay? And so whenever it comes to salvation, it is I am no longer trying to earn it. I'm no longer trying to uh, engage in this religious activity. I'm no longer trusting in the, the church. I'm no longer trusting in my, uh, my baptism, my confirmation, or whatever this is. But instead, I am trusting in the finished work of Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sins and the salvation of my soul. Okay, and so that is that turn that it takes. There has to be a change of heart, a change of mind that takes place. I'm no longer going this way. I'm going this way. I'm no longer trusting this. I'm trusting this. Okay, and so we see that all the way through the Old Testament uh, that with Adam and Eve, and I don't want to recount everything we went through because it'll uh, take a while. But anyway, all the way with Adam and Eve, whenever they sinned, the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And God killed an animal, clothed them with the skins of it, and that was to cover their guilt and their shame. It was an atonement, a covering for them to cover them up, cover up their sin until the final lamb, the final sacrifice, the final atonement would be offered up. And so it was a teaching tool that God gave to them 
It was something that showed them uh, what death was, what the wages of sin was, and that God was going to provide a way for their sins to be covered, for their sins to be paid for, for their debt of death to be satisfied in spite of their unworthiness. So Adam and Eve didn't go through uh, a bunch of ceremonies. They didn't perform a bunch of good works. They didn't pay penance. They didn't spend some time in purgatory. They didn't do anything. God killed the animal. They accepted that coat of skin, that covering upon themselves. And with that, they didn't die. They had salvation. And so that is the first type that we see of Christ of salvation, and it carries that way all through Scripture. And so last week, what we ended up looking at is we looked at the book of Judges, and I told you last week that even though there are 13 different judges throughout the book of Judges, not one of them is a type of Christ. Okay? Not one of them. And some may argue with me, and if you do, that's fine. But not one of them is a type of Christ, but instead they are extremely flawed individuals. The phrase that characterizes the entire book of Judges is every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Mm -hmm. And so man left to himself, the condition that he gets into is the book of Judges. And you see utter corruption throughout the book of Judges. So whenever you see some of the things that they're uh, dealing with, there's corruption in the home. There's corruption in the temple. There is corruption. Um, <clears throat> the temple's not built, the tabernacle. There's, so there's corruption in religion, there's corruption in the home, and there's corruption uh, even in the nation between the governments because the tribes are even feuding one with the other, right? Mm -hmm. And some of the things that they come up with are gruesome or grotesque. And it's not that God is uh, <coughs> condoning any of it. Uh, even if we look at Jephthah as one of the examples, he made a rash vow. He made a stupid vow without thinking it through. And the Bible says that he carried out his vow. For a long time, I tried to temper what I saw in the rest of Scripture and say, well, there's no way that Jephthah actually killed his daughter and offered her as a sacrifice. God never commands a human sacrifice. And God never, uh, never condoned what Jephthah did. But the book of Judges is recording whenever man does that which is right in his own eyes. Right? And so it gets pretty sketchy. It gets pretty weird at times. And you have people who are cowardly. You have people who are arrogant and prideful. You have people who are uh, outcasts and angry and bitter and resentful and all kinds of things going on in the book of Judges. But the overwhelming thing that you see throughout the book of Judges is a cycle that continues to happen that the people... Uh, turn against God, they reject God, they start following idols and all these different things, doing what's right in their own eyes. And whenever oppression comes to the place that they finally look to God for deliverance, in spite of their really overwhelming wickedness, whenever they call out to God, confess their sin, and ask God for deliverance, God raises up a deliverer. Okay? And so if we are basing any of, our, uh, any of our doctrine of salvation, any of our theology on the works of man or on the worthiness of man, uh, on his ability to obtain salvation, uh, we have none of that, especially through the book of Judges. But what we end up seeing is how merciful 
God is, how loving God is, how long-suffering God is. So yes, he will allow the consequences of sin to take hold. The Bible says in another place that if any be without chastisement, they are bastards and not sons. If we can sin successfully, right, for a long period of time and not have any consequences, not see any, uh, not see any uh, discipline taking place from God, then he's not our father, right? And so we see that going on for the nation of Israel. They lived wickedly. They rejected God. They did all kinds of horrible things, and God would still discipline them. He would chasten them as a father does his children. He would bring them back to himself, and he would continue to deal with them as rebellious children. And so we can compare that to us today as Christians because Israel was God's chosen people. We are still God's chosen people. We're not taking the place of Israel, but we can see a similar relationship going on. And if you are a believer, if you are saved and secured and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, oftentimes we still have times that we sin, we fall short, we rebel against God, we do all kinds of wickedness, and God allows the consequences to work in our lives. He allows there to be times of uh, uh, where we are missing out on the, the blessings and the benefits of being a child of God, but it doesn't mean that he's abandoned us, that he's cast us to the side, but still he's going to be working and drawing us back to himself. And none of what we have as Christians, our salvation, our walk with God, is based upon our deserving it, our being worthy of it. It is based on who God is, on his goodness, on his love, on his mercy, on what he has done for us. Mm-hmm. And everything that we do for him is, should be a result, should flow out of the fact that he first loved us. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us, right? Mm-hmm. That is our motivation. That is what keeps us going. And so as we looked at the book of Judges, we've seen all those things going on. So today we're going to be in the book of Ruth. This is the next book after Judges. We're actually going to be looking at, uh, Lord willing, two different women today. If I can, if I can be concise enough, we shall see. But anyway, we're going to be in the book of Ruth, and uh, the book of Ruth uh, takes place during the time of the Judges. So this was during the time that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Uh, one thing that we're going to see here is that just because every man did that which was right in his own eyes, it doesn't mean that there wasn't still a remnant. Uh, sometimes we get caught up as we're reading through uh, the times whenever people are away from God and wicked and depraved and different things, as if everyone was that way that there was none faithful still. We get kind of like Elijah because Elijah, at the time of uh, him being out in the cave and begging God to kill him, he says, I'm the only one left. And God said during that time there were still 7,000 more like him. That's a revelation, isn't it? We look at the time whenever Jesus was born, and we look at the religious leaders, and we see all the priests, and we see all of the, uh, the Pharisees and the different ones, and you think that the religious system was entirely corrupt. Well, in Jerusalem, for the most part, it was but there were still many godly Levites and priests that were still serving God, still looking for the Messiah. And we get a glimpse into that with the story of John the Baptist because you have Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Zechariah was dwelling in the hill country. 
him and his wife, they were faithful to the Lord. They were looking for the Messiah. He went to do his uh, time in the temple. He went to burn the incense on the altar, and the angel of the Lord spoke to him from his time in the temple. You remember the story? And he was just one of the faithful priests. Not all of them are wicked, right? And so applying that to where we're at today, the time of the judges, we think, okay, everyone was just completely out there, completely wicked. And, of course, there was an up and down to it. There was an ebb and a flow. There were times of you know, maybe mediocre revival taking place somewhere in there. But in the book of Ruth, we're introduced to a godly character by the name of Boaz. And Boaz is a type of Christ. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But Boaz is a type of Christ in Scripture. And so what we're going to be doing, we're going to be looking at Ruth. It's a short, uh, a very short book of four chapters long. But it is a beautiful book. It is one of the historic books telling about how things were at that time. And uh, it just gives us some insight into what God is doing. Uh, we're going to find later on that Ruth is actually someone that God puts into his family tree. We talked about Rahab earlier, right? And God puts Ruth into his family tree, one of the least likely candidates. And so we're seeing how God is working behind the scenes. He's moving things in place. But we see that God is in control, that he knows what he's doing, even whenever it seems like all men have lost their minds. Even whenever it seems like the world is out of control, whenever it seems like God's people have really dropped the ball, Whenever it seems like evil is prevailing, isn't that kind of the time that we are today? And we see books like Ruth, we see books like Esther, and we find out that God is still there. Right. He's still working, sometimes in ways that are imperceivable to us, but that God is still working and that God is still good, that God is still merciful, even whenever everything else has went out the window. And so anyway, let's go ahead, and I want to read a good bit of the first chapter of the book of Ruth to kind of get our, our feet on the ground here and what we're looking at. It says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons, and the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. And the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died, also both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then there arose with her. Then she arose, excuse me, with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited His people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters with her, her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return into the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb, that 
that they may be your husbands. Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am old and I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would you tarry for them till they were grown? Would you stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes, that the hand of the Lord is going out against me. And they lifted up their voice and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is going back unto her people, unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to turn from following thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. And so we, we've got a, a good groundwork for where we're going here in the book of Ruth. But let me just ask you all this, okay? How familiar, how familiar are you with the book of Ruth? What is the story of Ruth? What happens here? So far, what we've got is that uh, Naomi and Elimelech, their two boys, go to Moab to escape a time of famine. While they're there, the three husbands die and leave behind Naomi and the two Moabitess daughter-in-laws. And as they're returning back, one of them stays and the other one remains with Naomi, a Moabite with a Jew coming back to Bethlehem. But what happens from there? Okay. You, you, were, you really went for the abridged version, okay? Not helping me a bit there. Okay. Okay, so what we have as we continue through the story is that they get back to town, right? They get back to town. Everybody hears that Naomi is back. Everybody's catching up. It's a it had been a small village. Many of the people would have been related to her, right? Many people would have known her. She'd been gone for more than 10 years. And whenever she comes back, she is different than she left. At one point in time, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. Even in the passage that I read, she says, the Lord has dealt uh, harshly with me. Mm-hmm. She says, God did this to me. She is bitter against God. Did God do any of this to her? No. And so in the process of time, Ruth is going about and taking care of her older mother-in-law at this time, her bitter, probably somewhat hateful mother-in-law, right? Isn't that what bitterness does? You think she would have been easy to live with? God did this to me. How dare he? He took my husband. He took my sons. And Ruth says, well, I'm going to follow your crabby self around, right? (laughs) And so anyway, uh, Ruth is going about. They are... Widows, widows in Bible days were very, uh, very much likely to be in poverty. There wasn't much place for them to be uh, getting any wealth or riches. And so Ruth is going about gleaning in fields. She's going and picking up the scraps in the fields that the reapers are leaving behind. And the Bible says that her hap was to light in a field by a man by the name of Boaz. And whenever it says her hap, that means it just so happened. It's just a coincidence. Right? Which we know there's no such thing as coincidences that God is working behind the scenes. And her hat was the light upon the field of Boaz. And she gathered a bunch. Boaz knows her. He's been watching her. He's seeking to take care of her before any of this ever transpires. 
And in the process of all this, she gets a huge amount. She takes it back. Naomi says, how were you so productive? How did you do so well at gleaning? Because normally you're just going to be eking enough to get by. How did you do this? And she says, well, I was in the field of this man named Boaz. And Naomi's ears perk up. She says, Boaz, I know him. He's a near kinsman of us. And she says, make sure that you don't glean in anybody else's field besides Boaz's. And so she continues through the time of the harvest, and Boaz goes above and beyond to see to it that she's taken care of. And it comes to a point in time that Naomi gives Ruth some instruction. She says, Boaz is going to be in the threshing floor. He's going to be spending the night because what they would do is they would get their sacks of corn. They would go to the threshing floor. They'd have to wait their turn. And basically, they would sleep in queue. Okay? She said he's going to be there in the, the threshing floor. He's going to be waiting his turn to thresh his wheat and go through the process and all that. And so go there and lay at his feet in a submissive way. Lay at his feet. And whenever he speaks to you, ask him to cover you to... Uh, put his skirt over you. And now that's nothing suggestive. That's nothing weird or wrong. But it was symbolic saying that she was submitting to him and wanted him to take her in and to be the kinsman redeemer. And we can go all the way back to the law for this. And if there was a widow that was left alone, it was up to the family to take the responsibility and care for her. It started out with the brothers of the widow uh, or the brothers-in-law of the widow, were to take the widow in and raise up seed unto their dead brother if she didn't have any children. And so it was the family responsibility. There wasn't an adult system. There wasn't any sort of welfare agencies or anything going on. And so they did this. God did this in his mercy toward these widows so that they were not living in poverty, so that they weren't doing without. And so family lines weren't being snuffed out. Okay, So it was a beautiful thing that God had in place here. And so she goes to Boaz, and she does this. But there's something very important in all of this. Ruth is not a Jew. She is a Moabitess. And so with that, it's going to make it even more difficult. No one is going to want her because the Jews, uh, for one, they're prejudiced, right? And for two, the Moabites, by law were to be outside of the Jews whenever um, I need to now circle back around and get back to a little bit of history, lay a little bit more groundwork on this. Okay, is everybody following me still? Everybody still good? Okay. Whenever we look at who the, Moabite, uh, the Moabites are, anyone familiar with who the Moabites are? Anyone tell me their history? Hard question tonight, huh? Yeah, that's not can't remember? Moab was one of the nations that sprung up from Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter. Remember, he had two daughters, and they got him drunk in the cave and had children by him. And the resulting nations was Ammon and Moabites, right? Ammonites and the Moabites. And whenever the children of Israel came out of Egypt... The Moabites met them and resisted them and mistreated them. But God said they are your seed. They are your, your kin. Okay. So he didn't allow them to conquer them. But he said, 
Stay away from them, okay? Leave them alone. Don't fight against them. Don't conquer them. And I, I meant to look this up, and I, I didn't do this. So check me if I'm wrong, okay? But this was also the group of people who hired Balaam to curse Israel. And remember, God would not allow Balaam to curse Israel. The donkey talked to him and all that. Remember the story? And Balaam, since he couldn't curse Israel, he gave the Moabites a little bit of uh, yeah, inside information, if you will. He gave them a different plan. He says, if you can't curse them, you can corrupt them. Right? And so he advised the Moabites to intermarry with the Jews, and then the Jews would end up committing whoredoms with the idols of Moab, and then their God would no longer bless them. And as a result of that, God did end up coming to the place where he had to judge his people because of their sinful intermarriages with the Moabites and then taking in the Moabite religions and even coming to the place of child sacrifice and that kind of thing. And the judgment of God saw it was either 24,000 or 27,000 Jews dead as a judgment. And at that time, God said that the Jews were to have no dealings with the Moabites and that the Moabites could not enter into the temple. They couldn't uh, become Jewish proselytes, basically, until the 10th generation, which essentially was saying forever, okay? Keep them away. They, you're not to intermarry with them. You're not to intermix with them. You're not even to allow them to come in amongst you or to worship among you. They were a cursed people. That shines a new light on this passage, doesn't it? <laughs> They were a cursed people. They were on the outside. They were rejected. They were restricted. And God says, don't let them anywhere around. And so as we come to the book of Ruth, there is the time of the judges. God is allowing judgment to come down on Israel by the way of famine. God often brings famine against the, the people to judge them. Scarceness of things because he says, if you follow me, you obey me, I'll see that your crops yield plenty. So if they reject him and if they follow idols, obviously their crops are not going to yield plenty. There's going to be a famine. And so Elimelech, as he's looking at everything, he leaves Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Judah, and he goes to Moab. By the way, the name Bethlehem means the house of bread. So he leaves the house of bread to go down to Moab to try to find bread. Now Abraham made the same mistake centuries earlier. And so Elimelech says, I'm going to try to take care of my family, not by looking to God, not by faith, not by trusting him. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. I'm going to go the way of man. And instead of trusting in God, being in God's promised land, uh, looking to him to fulfill his promises, I'm going to look to the enemy. I'm going to look to the world to take care of me and my family. <laughs> Did that work out for Elimelech? So he died there. Amongst the enemies, the ones who were cursed, he died there. And his two sons married Moabite women who were restricted from them by law. Now, just as a side note here, one, as I was reading and studying on this, uh, one of the sources that I looked at uh, speculated that one of the reasons why 
Naomi tried to get Ruth and Orpah not to come back with her is that would be incriminating. She left Israel. She went to Moab, and here she comes back without her sons, bringing two Moabite daughters-in-law. If she leaves them in Moab, no one has to know what she's been doing down there. No one has to know the judgment of God that came on her family or her son's dying or any of those things. No one has to know. So it could have been almost a cover-up. Now, that's speculation. We don't know if that's why she tried to keep them behind, but maybe. Because it doesn't really make sense for her to say, I'm going back to the promised land. I'm going back to my God. You stay here and worship your idols. Right? But anyway, moving forward here. Okay. <laughs> With her going, telling the girls to go back, I always looked at it in the sense of, you married my son. He's not here anymore. Mm-hmm. Go back to your family. Mm-hmm. You know, go really back like. to, yeah. I try to make Like a release? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the way I always looked at it. Mm-hmm. But whenever you throw in the idea of knowing that you serve the true God and they serve a false God, yeah. how can you tell them to go back and serve their false gods? Now, to add an extra layer of complexity to it, she also knows with them being Moabites that most likely they're going to have a hard time finding a husband in Israel, right? So you could look at it as Naomi looking out for her daughters-in-law, saying it's going to be tough for you up there. No one's going to want you, right? But it does highlight the, the whole point here that Naomi was not in a place where she was any kind of a spiritual aid or leader here. She was not spiritually minded at this moment. She was very carnally minded, very fleshly minded. And so either way, she was either trying to uh, kind of guard her own neck or give them an easier life, but in a way damning them by not bringing them to the true God. Right? And whenever we are allowing uh, our flesh to be our guide... When we're not thinking spiritually, we're not uh, seeing things through the lens of Scripture, we do end up trying to go the easiest route, whatever is immediately satisfying, immediately easier. And so you look at it and say, okay, you can go back and worship your false gods, marry another husband and just be another pagan in Moab, or you can come with me, it's going to be more difficult, but you're going to get to know the true God. She's going to default to have a comfortable life as a pagan in Moab, right? And so anyway, as we're seeing all of this, the typology comes out here, and we find that uh, Naomi is a picture of Israel, right? Can you all see that? She has followed her... Husband, Elimelech, she has followed the false teachers and the the carnal minds and the because isn't that what Israel did with their their leadership at that time? She followed her leadership, and we've seen with the judges, we'll see later on with the kings how important leadership is, right? With Moses we saw that, with Joshua we saw that. And she followed her leadership to trust in their own wisdom, their own knowledge, in their enemies, instead of trusting in God. 
She went away from God's will. She went away from the promised land. She went away from the house of bread down into the uh, down into Moab to a cursed country. She lost all, right? While she was there, but she was still one of God's children, wasn't she? Now she falsely accused God. She said, God's done this to me. No, God says, you stay in the land, I'll take care of you. You follow me, then I'll see to it your needs are met. Right? But them turning away from God, they, uh, they forfeited his blessings. They forfeited his benefits. And she ended up in a place of lack and of need. She suffered hardship. She suffered death. Right? Not herself, but her family. And during that time, she was surrounded by the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were looking on her, was looking on her life. And she didn't have a whole lot of spiritual insight, a whole lot to glean from it. But it came to this place where she decided that she was going to return to God. Whenever she heard that there was corn in uh, in Israel, whenever she heard that God had visited his people in Bethlehem, Judah, they said, I'm going to go back to where there is bread. I'm going to go back to my homeland. I'm going to turn back and get the benefits of God, right? And so it was at that time that Ruth had observed, had listened, had learned from her husband, from her father-in-law, if he was still alive whenever she was around. It seems like he died and then the boys got married, so they may have never even met Elimelech, okay? But she had been around the boys. She had been around Naomi. And she says, I have made a decision that I'm going to follow you. I'm going to go wherever you go, and your gods will be my gods. And your people will be my people. Mm-hmm. And we find that Ruth at this time has, as I said earlier, she's repented. She says, I'm turning away from my gods and my religion, and I am turning to, in faith, to your God. Right? Yeah. This takes place here. And as we go forward, we're going to find that Ruth is a picture of the church. And she is learning from the teachings of Israel from the law and the prophets, right? About their God and about their ways and about how to have a Savior, right? Mm-hmm. And so going full circle on this where we were at earlier, uh, whenever they get up into the, uh, back up to Bethlehem, Judah, back into the promised land, and she realizes that Boaz is near kinsman, that God has connected the dots, if you will, and that she comes to Naomi, and Naomi is instructing her as a schoolmaster, right? Instructing her as a schoolmaster to bring her to her savior, Boaz. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? And so Ruth, by faith, none of this would make sense. And besides all this, Boaz was a wealthy landowner. He was a man of great substance. He had servants and he had land. He had all of these things going for him. Why would he want this widow? Why would he want to take in this burden? And on top of all that, why would he want to uh, tarnish his name and his reputation 
by taking in a Moabite, right? And so if Ruth, being aware of the beliefs and the customs at the time, knowing her station in life, knowing his, knowing everything that was going against her, it would have been uh, crazy for her to approach Boaz in this way, right? But in her time and gleaning in the fields, in the information that she was able to glean about Boaz, she found out that he was a good man, that he was a merciful person, that he was one who was honorable. And through her getting to know Boaz and her instruction from Naomi, she decides that she is going to listen to what she has been instructed, that she is going to, by faith, come to Boaz, right? That she was going to come to this place of submission. She was going to lay down at his feet. You, that's not hard for us to see that that is a humbling thing, right? You don't just come and lay at someone's feet. That's We compare that to a dog today, wouldn't we? She lays down at his feet, basically saying, I'm, I'm humbling myself. I have absolutely nothing to offer you. There is no reason that I should be accepted. You are going to gain absolutely nothing from this transaction, but I am relying upon you to be consistent with your nature and your reputation and your goodness and your mercy, because without you... I am going to continue in poverty. I may end up perishing, but I'm looking to you to provide for me and to give me life and substance, right? And so whenever she looks to him and says for him to cover her with his skirt, she is saying, I am submitting to you. I'm desiring you to take upon yourself your responsibility for me. She's coming empty-handed. She's not coming with gold or silver. She's not offering him anything. She's offering herself. That's it. And because of who he is, because of his character, his nature and things, he says, I will do all that you require of me. She comes to him by faith, humbles herself, seeks his salvation, and he willingly gives it. There's the matter that there's another kinsman that is nearer than him. And he says, I'm going to go out and uh, take care of this matter, showing that she had nothing to offer. He goes to the near kinsman and says, there's this matter of this possession of Naomi, of Elimelech, that needs to be redeemed. It needs to be bought back so it doesn't pass out of the family. He says, will you redeem it? He says, yeah, I'm interested in the land. He says, well, if you take the land, you take the widow. He says, no, no part of it. It shows us how she had nothing to offer. There was nothing to sweeten the deal whatsoever. There was no reason that he should desire her or want her, but he did. And so anyway, goes through all of this. He redeems her, buys her back, purchases her into himself, and he takes upon himself full responsibility for her and her family. Does anyone see salvation in this? 
Anyone see how this is just like New Testament salvation? Do we see how Ruth is like us? A Gentile bride and Boaz is like Christ? And so whenever we compare this to the New Testament, we come to Jesus with nothing to offer. We are cursed under the law. We have no access to the tabernacle, to all of these other things. We are uh, a foreign people. We are a Gentile people, right? No claim to any of the promises, any of the covenants. And we come and we cast ourselves at Jesus' feet, saying, I have nothing to offer. I am destitute. I am impoverished because of my sin. And I need your salvation. And he gladly takes upon himself our sin and our shame. He spreads his skirt over us and he bears that burden, bears that responsibility, and he gains nothing from it except us. And that's Old Testament. That's the book of Ruth. That's perfectly pictured there. We find that Naomi... Israel, right? Benefits from it. She had her time. She was away. And we know that God's not done with Israel. He's going to bring them back around. And they're going to benefit from Christ's salvation, from his relationship with the church. He's got things going on in the end times and whatnot. We'll see that later on. But all this comes together and it shows us a perfect picture of salvation. Okay? Does anyone have anything to add to or, or to to uh, say about Book of Ruth. I just wanted to get your um, take on Tolkien's My Redeemer. Mm -hmm. I've had discussions about this with people before where, you know, when there's a widow, it's the responsibility of the brother mm -hmm. um, to take the widow. And so some people think that justifies polygamy in the Old Testament, but I don't see that. I think that goes against all of God's principles. Mm -hmm. um, even his care for the woman, even though in Old Testament times we didn't have equality in the sense that we mm -hmm. hate that word, but you know what I'm getting at. Right. I think that goes against God's heart for people and individuals. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering what your take is on that. Um, obviously, in Scripture we find that uh, God does not endorse polygamy. Mm -hmm. We find that God created it to be one man, one woman. That's why he had Adam and Eve. We find that every occasion that a polygamy is uh, mentioned in Scripture, we see all the negative consequences and the fallout. There's not, a, there's not necessarily a condemnation against it uh, wholesale in, in Scripture, but we find as things progress and as God reveals himself and as he works amongst his people, polygamy begins to fade out and be done away with. We come up to the book of books of Kings and Chronicles and the main polygamists are the kings. We don't find polygamy existing so much amongst the common people. We come to Jesus' day, polygamy was pretty much unheard of unless it was uh, basically legalized polygamy of repeated divorces. Okay, you've got that going on, but not actually having more than one wife. And so I believe the teaching in the Word of God is pretty conclusive about polygamy. Now, with 
the idea of the kinsman redeemer, um, in a way, it would have been somewhat of a marriage of convenience that God was using a cultural normality, something that was openly accepted as a way to see to it that these were taken care of. It wasn't making a, a harem. It wasn't creating multiple wives. But there were times whenever it would have meant that for them to take them under their under their roof and to raise up a, a, an heir to their sibling or whatever, that they would have ended up having more than one wife by law. But it wasn't a matter of, hey, I'm multiplying wives into myself. It's I'm bringing my brother's widow in here. And it wasn't for a matter of um, selfishness, lust, or even romance, but it was a matter of seeing to it that this woman wasn't destitute and that the brother's lineage wasn't cut. And so he was kind of a, a surrogate. He was a stand-in, if you will. And I don't know if that answers your question at all. Yeah, you're going along the same lines. I probably wouldn't, I'm not quite sure I see it because... As I said, it kind of it runs rough shot over the mm-hmm. rights of an existing wife, mm-hmm. shall we say, who might not like this. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'd often wondered, the mm-hmm. other man there you were saying, who was the uh, nearer mm-hmm. kin, um, it could be yeah, that he, she's a Moabitess, I'm not interested, or mm-hmm. it could be that, the, that he had an existing wife who said, under no circumstances is that woman coming right. in here. Because well, women have, don't differ much over the ages, I'm sure. Well, the nearer kinsman specifically says it would mar his inheritance. Yeah. So he looks at it and he's like, no, this is going to mess up things amongst my family. I see. Mm-hmm. So I wondered, you know, um, and it's probably not clear, maybe it is clear, but I'm just not seeing it. This kinsman redeemer, mm-hmm. in God's perfect um, world, we would have the kinsman redeemer being not married. Mm-hmm. So is it possible that perhaps it has Like the nearest unmarried? Well, I would have to look a little bit more, but um, if you look at the the story of Tamar, Judah and Tamar, yeah. uh, infamous story, but you've got that going on where um, her husband dies, she's promised to the next one, and of course he would have been unmarried, right? Because Shechem wasn't old enough. Um. But there is one that happens in between that is struck dead, right? Was he married? I'd have to look into that. I, I can't remember on that one if he was no, already married or not. But I've never come to a conclusion. But he was, he was struck dead because he wanted the pleasure without the responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so rather than just saying, no, I'm not taking that on myself, he's like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And then he ducks out, for lack of better terms. And that's what God judged him for. It wasn't because of the way that, well, it was because of the way that he went about things. But a lot of people will take that, like, against contraception and stuff like that. That's not what that's about. It's that he said, I'm going to perform this position, this this right, but then he backs out, like I said, he takes the pleasure without the responsibility. That's what he was judged for. And then the third one was Shechem. So I think one of the keys to that, to get a little bit more insight, would be find out if the one that died, if he was... Um, if he was married or not, if that would have been a second wife. And so, yeah, I'm not completely sure. Um, it's not something that there's a lot of information about that. Um, uh, 
that I think that we need to be too concerned about today. Uh, if people were using it proof texting to try to justify polygamy, um, it's a stretch. Yeah. yeah, they've got bigger problems than that. And the reason I say that is uh, the ones who are using it to justify polygamy aren't marrying their deceased brother's wife to raise up seed unto him. They're trying to multiply wives to themselves. And so that completely goes away from the, the principle there. And I guess one of the main things to take away from it is God's heart toward the marginalized and seeing to it that there is a means for them to be cared for in the society. And that even though God doesn't endorse some of these things, sometimes he governs the things that he doesn't approve of. Because there's times that he does he could do a, a wholesale prohibition against something, but God in all of his wisdom and his knowledge knows people, knows the hearts of men, knows the cultures, and it would be ineffective. Uh, people say, well, there was slavery in the Bible, and God regulates slavery in the law, right? Does that mean that God approves of it? No, but he regulates that which he hates to accomplish that which he loves. That was a, a phrase that I was that I heard here recently, and I thought that was great. He regulates what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And so we know that he doesn't approve of slavery, but he regulated. He said, well, this is since you're going to have slaves, this is how you treat them. Okay? And so you could almost apply it to that kingdom and redeemer as well. No, I'm not endorsing polygamy, but we need a system in which you can take care of the widows. And so someone needs to take the responsibility. And with the kinsman redeemer, um, I'm going to get myself in trouble, maybe. We're into a, bigger, into a bigger study. But this thing of the kinsman redeemer teaches us something about marriage as well. Because it wasn't just take her in and take care of her, build her a flat on the back. It was, it was, okay, there needs to be a commitment that takes place. You're going to take her to be a wife. And so it was about that commitment that she's going to become your responsibility, not a fly by the night, not a fling, not, you know, just something that you keep until it's inconvenient. But instead, it's going to be, okay, there's a commitment here. And the reason I said I might be stepping into things is even in the way that God set that up, he is showing the necessity for people in relationships to be committed in those relationships. Because in the world that we live in today, it's easy just to shack out. It's easy just to move in together, just to live together, just to uh, try it out, see if it works or if it doesn't. And you're never going to actually protect and care for the needs of that other person unless there is a commitment there. And so God is protecting the vulnerable. And in that society, the woman was extremely vulnerable. Uh, even today, the Bible still says that she is the weaker vessel. And so with marriage today, uh, I was even listening to a, a message this week, and it was talking about they've got this idea that uh, marriage is a social construct that men came up with to oppress women. Anyone ever heard that? Do you know how stupid that is? That marriage would be a social contra- construct to oppress women? And they kind of equate it to like you're owning that woman. But here's what actually happens in marriage, Okay is that the man commits to the woman that he's going to be hers and hers alone. He's not going to be able to go out and run around and have flings with all these other women. And then he's going to be roped down with the responsibility of caring for her, taking care of her, and seeing to it to care for all the offspring and all those things. 
And so if man did that in order to oppress the women, he's really shot himself in the foot, right? And so in the grand scheme of all that, what we're looking at, and I know I really went the far way around, didn't I? Yeah. Okay. But with the kinsman redeemer, God says, if that woman left to herself without a child, by the way, this isn't every widow. These are the fatherless ones, right? They have no seed beyond them. They have no one to take care of them, no lineage beyond themselves. And so he says, rather than let her go into abject poverty, then she needs to stay in the family there, have the family take care of her, marry one of the siblings, and him take the responsibility. Now, with what you were saying, I think the best way to go about it would be that she marries one of the unmarried siblings. There's always going to be the chances, opportunities that all of them are already married, right? So then what? And it seems to me like she's still going to be coming in and becoming a wife. Well, it would be a marriage, and he would be committed to her, a lifelong commitment, not for uh, all of the uh, emotional and physical benefits of marriage, but for the well-being and health and protection of the woman, right? And so I think what we end up doing is we get our, our attention on the wrong thing as far as the situation goes because it's weird to us. But also, uh, we get focused. It's the idea of not seeing the force for the trees, where God is saying, I want to see to it that she is cared for, that she is uh, protected, that there is uh, something in place that she is not going to fall to the wayside, that she's going to... Because even built into the law... Uh, whenever they were harvesting and that kind of thing, they were to leave portions of their crops behind for the strangers, for the fatherless, for the widows, right? For the most marginalized of society, right? And so God was constantly looking at this saying, okay, I need to make sure that these people are taken care of because man left to themselves in their corrupt condition without any guidance from God are going to say, forget them. Selfishness is going to prevail. Uh, well, sorry about her luck. Yeah, she was my brother's wife, but she starves to death. She's not my problem. She was his problem, right? And God says, no, that is your problem. Okay? So to have a hard-line black and white answer, we don't have one. We can't be dogmatic about what the Bible is not dogmatic about. But we can take the things that are clear. And God has a love and a heart for those who are marginalized. We have a responsibility. We are our brother's keeper. Uh, we know the normal formula for marriage, right? And so we don't want to build strange and weird doctrines on the things that are fuzzy and unclear. And some of these things we just have to realize it was a product of the time. It was part of the culture. And God, throughout the scripture, we find a progression going on. I'm not saying that God's a progressive God, okay? 
because uh, people would run with that and say, okay, well, we've progressed as a society, and if God's a progressive God, now he'd be for transgenderism and all this. No, that's not what I'm saying. Okay? I've got to be careful with that. But what we see here is that God is dealing with sin, and the further we go, the more clear he is about his plan and his expectation, what's pleasing to him, and he begins a refining process, and he's trying to cleanse and transform, and he does that through his people. And we get to apply that to us as Christians today, is that uh, whenever God saves us, there's almost like a triage that goes on, okay? Because whenever God saves you, there are some more major issues that need taken care of in your life, right? If we have the idea of, okay, you got saved, now we need to make you model Christian day number one, just unload everything on you, and I've seen people try to do that, you're going to blow out, you're going to burn. That's not the way that God works. But God sets to the things that are going to be the most important, and he starts dealing with the things that's going to cause the most, the, the sinful conditions in your heart and your life that's going to cause the most problems, right? And he starts cleansing you from that, and the longer you walk with him, the more that he cleanses you, the more that he cleans you, and you're going to start off with, you know, like the the blatant, the open, the uh, the abominable things, right? And after you've walked with him for a little while, he's going to start pinpointing some of the little things, okay? And I see that happening in the Old Testament as God's working through his people, and that there are earlier on major problems, right? that are still existing. It's like, God, you're, you're not going to deal with that? Now give me time, right? And so, yeah, we covered several different things there. I don't answer anything very concise mm-hmm. there. But just thinking out loud through all of this. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely not an excuse for polygamy, but uh, the emphasis on that is is the care for the vulnerable and uh, that we are, we are a brother's people. The sinful heart will find anything they can to justify mm-hmm. even from the word of God, right? Yeah. Well, yes. Uh, from the experience, maybe coming from polygamy and the culture behind it, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in the Bible way, I want to say it's polygamy. To me, I don't know about the other person, the way it's laid out. Mm-hmm. Because on my understanding, polygamy to be a married person decide to take a certain mm-hmm. wife or third or fourth. Mm-hmm. That's polygamy. Mm-hmm. In my culture, it used to happen, and even now it happened. If this the lady passed off, the brother passed away. Okay, now times have changed, but back then it was she had to be taken care of. And then there will be a point where Maybe people are not, uh, they are not, uh, they don't like it, otherwise, I don't know to put it. But based on circumstances behind, they have to go through. It has nothing to do with, uh, sometimes it has nothing to do with, with the uh, bodily desires. They just say, okay, we sit down, elders sit down, it's okay. We appoint you to take care of this family. Mm-hmm. So there's not anything uh, pleasure going on. Mm-hmm. It's just this family have to be taken. Maybe the children be left behind. Mm-hmm. 
and the, the woman she's not going to be able to, to take up those children. Mm -hmm. So in other way, people don't say, ah, you take that woman, she's your second wife, you and polygamy, but how does it happen to make it polygamy? To list like polygamy is when um, I'm satisfied with my woman, mm -hmm. I'm looking for second wife. In Middle East, they've got a, they've got a, a, a culture of, it's open culture. Mm -hmm. A man is allowed religiously to get as much women as Especially amongst Muslim faiths. Yeah. Yes. So that comes with money. If you can afford, you can get. If you can't afford, you can still get. So that I will consider that being polygamy because it's an open session. Mm -hmm. But the way Pastor explained it, yes, uh, maybe more than days we would say polygamy, but in Bible where mm -hmm. there was a need that needed to be taken, so mm -hmm. it can't be considered as polygamy. Okay. Well, something that you brought out there that uh, that, that kind of helped me separating it in my mind is the difference between what the Bible is prescribing here and polygamy. Polygamy generally is rooted in a selfish or prideful thing. It is for the benefit of the man at the detriment of the woman, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the women are demeaned. The women are treated as an object to be owned or uh, extra extra heifers in the barn to increase the herd. And pardon me for saying that, for, but that's that's the way that they're treated because, okay, I need more women so that I can have more offspring, that I can have a bigger herd, and I have my own tribe, I increase my social standing, I increase my economic abilities, and so that's polygamy. But on the other hand, what the Bible is prescribing is that the woman is benefited at the expense of the man rather than the other way around. Yes. And so that flips things on its head like the Bible generally does, right? And so rather than it saying, okay, I'm going to multiply wives unto myself to create a bigger family and increase my portfolio, I am going to bring another responsibility under myself, someone else to care for. I'm going to uh, maybe harm myself so that she benefits. Yeah. And so it is sacrificial in that way. And so that's that's a huge difference. Um, you look at, for instance, Jacob with his four wives. Okay? It was disastrous, but that was polygamy, right? Now, it was accidentally at first because he worked for Rachel. He ended up with Leah. He didn't intend to have more than one wife, but he wanted Rachel. And so he said, well, I got Leah. I'm stuck with her. And I'm going to bring Rachel as well because, well, it's culturally acceptable. And it then enters in jealousy, right? And competition and hard feelings and everything else. And then they're competing for how many children they can have. And one of them doesn't have enough children or not able to have children. So, okay, Let's have her or have him to marry her to produce children in my stead. So now we've got concubines. And Leah leaves off bearing children and she says, Oh, I, the womb's dried up. Let's give you my concubine. And so it's all about, okay, you need to have more children. And the wives are okay with it. So, hey, let's go ahead and bring in more women. 
And it's a mess, right? Yeah. So why is the post muscle spectrum? Yeah. yeah. It's time again. Time times tells stories. I believe God was working behind the scene that time to make this woman being obedient mm-hmm. so that his plan will be fulfilled. But in other way around if we look just fleshly manner, it it was just desire. These kings they were going through. I just need a good man, a powerful man. I have everything I can so I can take anyone I want. So that's polygamy. Yeah, the ultimate example of polygamy is Solomon, right? Yeah. You know, 700 wives, 300 concubines. That's insane. It's still not happening. He's like everyone. But even in his relationship with his 700 wives, 300 concubines, he's trying to keep them happy. He's building up uh, temples to all their false gods and starting out all that religion and things. But most of his marriages are, excuse me, or many of his marriages are a result of um, politics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's okay, I'm going to marry King so and so's daughter, the princess of this land, of this tribe, to help with our. And so it was amassing political power, it was amassing wealth. Okay. The thing that I always struggle with Solomon, and I know we've gotten really off track, but anyway, that's okay. The thing that I really struggle with Solomon. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. The thing that I really struggle with Solomon is he was supposed to be the wisest man on earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but it is an example of just because you're wise doesn't mean you're smart. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And also, as you get off, sorry, as you get off track with the Lord, mm-hmm. at one point, Solomon being wise, he was walking well with the Lord. With the Lord, It's yes. a huge the lesson to mess. each of us that yeah. anything can happen, you know, we really need to be diligent about it. Yes. You know, walk with the Lord, and it's not a works-based diligence either. Mm-hmm. It's just you know, touching base with God every day. Mm-hmm. That's a relationship, yeah. yes. and any relationship that's not tended is going to flounder. Yeah. And it's like the old saying goes, uh, you know, the, about the grass is greener on the other side. That your grass would be just as green if you'd water it, right? And so that's the thing. If you spend the time watering and tending to it, then you know it's going to be just as green. You know, it takes time, it takes effort in relationships. And uh, if you have 700 wives and 300 concubines, you're definitely not going to be able to put time and effort into relationships. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, yeah, that's, that's a little in left field from there. But uh, all good thoughts anyway. I like where y'all get involved. You never know where we'll end up at, but I like when you get involved. But anyway, back to, back to what we said at Ruth, just... just Tying it up here, we find that God is God is the one that extends salvation. He is the only one able to save. He's not looking out and seeing who is worthy. He's not looking out and impressed by our works and our abilities. We are Moabites. We are outcasts. We are uh, cursed under the law. And we throw ourselves at Jesus' feet, ask for his salvation. No merit to offer him, nothing to claim. And he saves us because of who he is and how good he is. Because he has the ability and we don't. And uh, so I praise the Lord for the picture that that is all the way back in the book of Ruth, all the way back in the book of Judges, uh, or just in the time of the Judges. Every man was doing that which was right in his own eyes. 
and God was still seeking and saving that which was lost. And we come all the way up to the end of the book of Ruth, and we find a bit of a genealogy. And I'm not going to read this. This is just my closing here. But if you read through the genealogy, you come down to verse number 22, in the descendants of Boaz and Ruth, and Obad begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. And so God took a cursed Moabitess and put her in his family tree. Because we know that Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah, out of the root of Jesse, right? Royal lineage of David. And so Ruth became Jesus' ancestor. God saw to it to put a Moabitess in his family. And for whosoever will, God will put them in his family today. So I praise the Lord for that. Told you we we're going to look at two different women today. Didn't happen. No, no, I was already too far whenever. Yeah, he was. Yeah. I was already too far gone whenever we came to that. But anyway, good discussion anyway. Anyone got anything else? Yeah, who's the other one? I was going to do Jose and Gomer. But that'll be next week. Okay, well, if you're not here, I'll put it online eventually. I'm getting behind yeah, on, yeah, yeah, I'm backlogged on putting stuff online. But anyway, I will get it there eventually. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I, I love the book of Hosea. And uh, so we'll be looking at it next week. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you for the, the time that we've had here in your word. Lord, we, we praise you and thank you for what a what a beautiful book Ruth is, what, what a story it is and how it pictures uh, your love and your caring for us, Lord. And Lord, we, we thank you, Lord, that you're our kinsman redeemer. You're our Boaz, Lord. And Lord, we just praise you for that. We ask you, Lord, just to help us to uh, continue to uh, gain interest and desire to uh, study in your word and meditate on your word and think on your word. And Lord, I just pray that uh, you would open it up to us and reveal it to us and guide us in it, Lord. And Lord, I just thank you so much for all that you do. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.